Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Hi, everybody. I'm Nicole, and I'm the Connection Pastor here. Um, Almost three years ago now, the world lost one of my bright lights of faith. She was a young, progressive Christian named Rachel Held Evans. And for those of you here tonight who haven't heard of her, she was a best-selling author, and she was the co-founder of the Evolving Faith Conference, which was an annual gathering of young, progressive Christians. She died in 2019 uh, following an unexpected allergic reaction at the age of 37. So when we decided to do a sermon series focused on perspectives within progressive Christianity, I knew what I wanted my piece of that to be, Um, a chance to read and discuss her final book with you all, and a reflection of both of our paths to our shared progressive faith. Now, Rachel and I came to our shared progressive faith along different routes. She grew up in the evangelical church. I grew up Catholic. We've heard from John and Paula in this series about what it's like to come up out of evangelical roots into progressive faith, and tonight I want to speak a little bit to the former Catholics in our crowds because that's where my faith journey started. And although the destination is very much the same, the routes look a little different. But both my path and Rachel's path could be described as one where our faith evolved from following rules to accepting that God's love is guaranteed. And given that guaranteed love, we were called to shift our focus to inviting others into knowing God's guaranteed love via cultivating a practice of what Jesus called us to do in the world, to love God, to love neighbor, and to love self. So I'm gonna pick that apart as we go tonight, but I wanna talk about what took us from the rules to this acceptance of guaranteed love. And the first thing was asking hard questions. Rachel and I were both big question askers from an early age. To paraphrase Eddie Vedder, to get to our progressive faith destinations, we both needed to have a mind full of questions and a teacher in our soul. We grew up questioning early why, for example, women were held outside of full participation in our churches of origin. And as we got older, what about our gay friends? Also, was there some higher purpose to all this suffering we were seeing in the world? Was it coming from God? Was it the result of free will? Was it just entropy? 
Will my faith protect me and the people I love from any of it? Questions like those, they get you going from the rule book to guaranteed love. And once you start asking those questions, you start wrestling with the rules that are suspect. I started looking for answers to my questions here. This was the metaphorical house that built me. It's the catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a comprehensive statement of what the Catholic Church says it believes and teaches. It was my rule book for a very long time. The word catechism is derived from the Greek word to echo. And the Catholic Church teaches that the catechism's purpose is to echo the word of God across the expanse of time. My favorite way that the catechism's ever been described was actually by Pope Francis, who called it the long wave of God's word, intended to transmit the joy of the gospel into our current daily context. As a child, I loved knowing all the rules. They were order in a chaotic world. They were order that I was told laid a path from me home to God. Now, it's worth saying that knowing all the rules and following all the rules are very different things. <laughs> and also, to paraphrase Eddie Vedder, I knew all the rules, but the rules did not know me. As I wrestled with them, some of these rules turned out to be utterly unacceptable to me. Like number 1261 in this here rule book, which I turned to when the first of several beloved babies in my family died before they could be baptized. That rule says that the church does not know whether unbaptized babies can go to heaven. That because they're unbaptized, the church must rely on God's mercy and hope that there's a way for them to avoid eternity in purgatory. Rules like that made me go, wait, what? An unbaptized baby isn't guaranteed God's love? The teacher in my soul very clearly told me otherwise. Now, Rachel came up along a different route. She grew up in the evangelical church, as I mentioned, and she said that she grew up viewing the Bible as a manual to provide black and white answers to her questions. So the Bible was her rule book. We both grew up immersed in the idea that God's love was not guaranteed and that we would be held apart from him until we had reconciled, that we were all sinners and that we deserved punishment. Our evolving faith took us away from this, from following those respective rule books to avoid sin and to avoid punishment, to focus on cultivating the practice of what Jesus called us to do in the world, to love God, to love neighbor, and to love self. It's what Paula speaks to often as the shift from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. There are two other things behind besides asking hard questions and wrestling with suspect rules that helped both of our faiths evolve that I'm also gonna talk about. The first is scripture that sustained us, and the second is people who provoked us to progress our beliefs. So I wanna start with sustaining scripture. Everybody here probably has a Bible story that they would consider to be a wellspring for their faith. And Rachel and I happen to share a couple of those. I'm going to start with the story of the Annunciation or the announcement that Mary would conceive Jesus. 
In fact, it was the scripture leading up to and including the Annunciation that drove me when I was confirmed in the Catholic Church to choose Gabriel as my confirmation name. I've always loved that angel's role in the Bible. I always sort of saw Gabriel as God's communication angel. But these stories, they made Gabriel my angel. In Luke chapter one, Gabriel appears before the priest Zechariah to tell him that his wife Elizabeth will bear the child we now know as John the Baptist. I'm gonna read a little bit from that. Unannounced, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was paralyzed with fear, but the angel reassured him, don't fear, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son by you, and you are to name him John. You are going to leap like a gazelle for joy, and not only you, many will delight in his birth. We skip forward a little bit. Zechariah said to the angel, do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man, and my wife is an old woman. But the angel said, I am Gabriel, sentinel of God, sent especially to bring you this glad news. But because you won't believe me, you'll be unable to say a word until the day of your son's birth. Every word I've, spoke, I've spoken to you will come true on time, God's time. As an aside, I kind of love that he could shut people up that didn't believe him for months on end. It's a fantastic skill. Skipping ahead a little bit more, we see Gabriel again when he appeared before Mary to ask for her consent to bear Jesus. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning, you are beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out, God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. Gabriel went on with some beautiful words for who Jesus would be. And then Mary asked the totally valid question of how? <laughs> to which Gabriel answered, Holy Spirit. And then he pointed to Elizabeth's pregnancy as proof saying this, nothing you see is impossible with God. So there I was, this young girl filled with questions and callings that ran counter to my church's allowed role for women in the church. And I hung on that angel's message. Nothing is impossible with God in God's time. Now, Rachel also grew up in a church where women faced some serious limitations. The pinnacle of achievement in her church of origin for a godly woman was to be a pastor's wife. And so this story spoke to her too. And I wanna read what she wrote about it in her final book because it's beautiful and it made me cry the first time I read it. Hope it doesn't now. It is nearly impossible to believe God shrinking down to the size of a zygote implanted in the soft lining of a woman's womb, God growing fingers and toes, God kicking and hiccuping in utero, God inching down the birth canal and entering this world covered in blood, perhaps into the steady waiting arms of a midwife, God crying out in hunger, God reaching for his mother's breast, God totally relaxed, 
eyes closed, chubby little arms thrown over his head in a posture of complete trust, God resting in his mother's lap. On the days and nights when I believe this story that we call Christianity, I cannot entirely make sense of the storyline. God trusted God's very self totally and completely and in full bodily form to the care of a woman. God needed women for survival. Before Jesus fed us with the bread and the wine, with the body and the blood, Jesus himself needed to be fed by a woman. He needed a woman to say, this is my body given for you. So in Luke's gospel, Rachel and I heard two compelling truths, that God trusted a woman with a sacred and central role in enabling God to be embodied with us, and that nothing is impossible with God in God's time. And the scripture sustained our evolving faith. We also both found sustenance for our faith in the book of Ezekiel. And for those of you who have read it, that might be a little unexpected because it's a book with a lot of harsh judgments and a fair bit of God's wrath and a fair number of sexually loaded anecdotes. But it's in the last part of the book of Ezekiel where God makes a promise to the people of Israel through Ezekiel saying this, a new heart I will give you a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The words in Hebrew translated here as heart of flesh are lev basar. The concept of being given a lev basar means being given a heart, as Rachel wrote, that is aware and attentive to its creator and to the rest of creation. In this concept, brokenness ceases to be a dirty word. Rather, allowing your heart to be broken open by worldly suffering is the path to acquiring this heart of flesh, an open vessel of empathy that feels fully and expresses love generously in the spirit of alleviating suffering in others. It's a heart that's unafraid to be vulnerable and unafraid to work to heal, because it knows that our scars will prove to be healing points of connection for those who are walking behind us, suffering still with open wounds. So, so far we've covered asking the hard questions, wrestling with suspect rules, turning to scripture that would sustain us through those questions. But what else took me from catechism girl to being given that heart of flesh? Well, that's where the people that provoke us to progress our faith come into play. It's important to have people that are willing to walk with you along the not straight line of deconstruction. And you have those people here. Rachel had them and she became one for so many through her writing. So the following is a funny story about how one of those people came into my life, or should I say it's a funny story now. <laughs> I was in college, and our campus has these beautiful gothic turreted dorms, and they're reserved for a series of themed residential houses. There's no sorority or fraternity housing on campus. It's like Greek life for nerds. And I lived in one of those that had a theme of community, both in terms of service 
and living. And I will say that there were some aspects of the community living theme that challenged me. For one, the, the dorm had a strict open door policy. Basically, to encourage living into community, if you were home and you had your clothes on, the rule was that your door stayed open. And as a selectively social introvert, this was like a level of hell for me. People could just come in and say hi and hang out anytime they felt like it. And I think we've already established that I knew all the rules, but the rules did not know me. So I would open my door like this much, <laughs> just enough to comply with the rule, which was also just enough to hear the music and contagious laughter of the guy who lived across the hall. I didn't know this guy very well. I knew that he was gay. I knew that he was wicked smart. He was a Duke on a full merit scholarship. And I came to know his music collection, which I loved invisibly behind my barely cracked door. I was still very much a rule-wrestling Catholic, and he was a loudly, boldly, self-proclaimed gay agnostic. So it wasn't exactly a friendship match made in heaven. Until it was, thanks to some evangelicals who lived down the hall from us. So Kristen was a southern blonde evangelical hallmate who came back from spring break with a zeal to bring some people to Jesus. I guess the combo of the Catholic girl and the agnostic gay guy across the hall from each other was just too much of a two birds with one prayer vigil opportunity for her. So I don't have enough time in this sermon, I am told, to fully dive into why evangelicals don't think Catholics are down with Jesus, but I'm happy to talk more about that offline if you have questions. But this day, I was hiding out at my desk behind my mildly open door, and instead of being treated to this guy's wonderful playlist, I heard praying, loud praying. And then I heard my name, and then I heard a call for me to accept Jesus as my personal savior, and to set aside my cannibalistic and vampire ways. <laughs> now, I was as confused as you might be. <laughs> Apparently, someone in her church had explained to Kristen that Catholics believe that the Eucharist is transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ, and she really ran with that. And as a side note, if that part of the story piqued your interest at all, I'm here as your alleged former cannibal vampire pastor. Highly recommending the Netflix series Midnight Mass, which is a nuanced look at Catholic faith gone wrong starring an actual vampire priest. It was great. But back to the prayer vigil. Once Kristen finished her focus on me, another girl named Carrie joined her. And I would like to note here that I have not included either of their full names in my sermon because I am down with Jesus and he taught me to forgive. Anyway, <laughs> they started praying for my gay neighbor to repent his sinful lifestyle. At this point, I walked to my barely open door, ready to slam it shut, and I said something very much along the lines of, oh, for fork's sake, Jesus and I are fine. And the guy across the hall was also there in his open doorway, and he was staring down at this enthusiastic prayer vigil between us. And he locked eyes with me, and he pointed at my grandfather's crucifix, which was hanging around my neck, and he started to laugh, his contagious laugh. And he held out his hand across the hall, 
over their fervently praying heads, and he said, well, Nicole, seeing as how we are going to be stuck in hell together, we might as well start being friends now. Come on, come on over, I've got the new Tracy Chapman. So I stepped past those evangelicals into his dorm and it started a beautiful and lifelong friendship where we never held back the saying of hard or truth-filled things to each other and many snarky things about our hallmates. But over the years, we lived together in three cities, we had one grand British adventure, and we deconstructed this here rule book. He gently challenged me on the blind spots of the faith that I had been raised in. He provoked me kindly but firmly, and I made progress. And it's one of his favorite things in this whole world that I am the pastor at this specific church. And I suppose we have our evangelical doormates to thank for a different sort of conversion than they had hoped for, because love always wins. And so this sermon is ultimately an affirmation that a key part of an evolving faith is being willing to ask hard questions. It's a reminder that as we wrestle with the rules that stand between us loving God and neighbor and self, that Jesus also knew all the rules, but the rules certainly did not know him. It's praise for scriptures that echo out to us from across the expanse of time to sustain our faith in God's timing, in God's will, and in God's view of us. It's a blessing for the people who provoke us to answer our questions of faith critically and to live into different answers than those we were born into. And it's a sermon that ends with what Rachel calls the beautiful truth and gorgeous reality of our progressive Christian faith, that God's love for us is guaranteed. It is that guaranteed love that we are asked to echo out into the world. UCC pastor Matthew Weber has the best words I think I've read to date on this when he said, the thing that sucks is that every time we draw a line between us and other people, Jesus is on the other side of it. So I ask you to join me in defining progressive, excuse me, from defining progressive Christianity by what we here do to invite others into this beautiful truth of God's guaranteed love by the way we seek to practice it in the world. And I ask you to pray with me as I close with this blessing of Rachel's words. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are they who doubt. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are you, poor in spirit. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are those who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everybody else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are you who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Every single one of you and every single one you have met and will meet, you are of heaven and God's love for you is guaranteed. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the 
love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.